Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Christopher Thrasher, co-author alongside Guy Lancaster of The Murder of Oscar Chitwood in Hot Springs, Arkansas, published by the History Press. Thanks so much to all of you who have already written in to tell us about your favorite episode from the Paranormal series. For those of you who are new to the show today, last week's episode has all the details, so be sure to check it out. Don't forget to email us at crimecapsule at evergreenpodcasts.com for your chance to win a free book from Arcadia Publishing in our first ever Crime Capsule giveaway. Okay. Back to the interview, and thanks as always for listening. Christopher, welcome back to Crime Capsule. Pleasure to be with you again. Where we left off, Oscar Chitwood was lying face down in the snow, having just been murdered by what we believe is a sheriff's deputy who is assigned uh, to transport him safely from one jail to the next. And yet, immediately, the narrative goes out that he has been lynched. And you and Guy Lancaster write that Oscar Chitwa's murder was premised from the very beginning on a lie. Where did this lie come from? Uh, The lie comes from the tragic acceptance by many people of lynching uh, as an acceptable way of dealing with problems uh, in uh, 19th and early 20th century Arkansas and other places as well. Uh, There had been lynchings uh, in in Arkansas. There were lynchings after this that that really were lynchings. Uh, And what happened was, what Lancaster and I argue, and what I think the evidence supports, is that uh, these two deputies – saw this as a a cover. They saw this as a way of they want to murder uh, Oscar Chitwood uh, for various reasons we can get into. And they say, well, we're going to have to explain the dead body somehow. We're going to have to explain who killed him if we don't want to accept responsibility. And so they say, well, we'll say it was a lynching, uh, which was was certainly something that did happen. Uh, and could have happened. Uh, I think Lancaster has, has written that uh, Chitwood was not lynched, but he was the kind of man who was lynched in many cases. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. Um, like I said, Lancaster is really the, the expert when it comes to vigilante violence and all that. Uh, and I, I think he's absolutely correct about that. He, he's the kind of guy that got lynched in many cases, the kind of white man that kind of got, that would get lynched in many cases. Uh and so I think that the deputies thought they could use this as a as a cover story and that it would be accepted. Uh, and it was it was not accepted uh, by many members of the community. So it's about 2 a.m. the night after Christmas Day. And tell us who was there in that little courtyard by the police station and more importantly, who wasn't there? Yeah. So the person that wasn't there uh, was uh, was Sid Hopped, who had been 
uh, present at the shootout. He'd been the deputy uh, after his his brother passed away. He became the sheriff. Uh, he was away uh, visiting family, so he was he was nowhere near Garland County, Arkansas at the time. Uh, so the the most obvious person with a motive to kill Chitwood uh, was not was not present. He was not in the county. He was not at the state at the time. Uh, the two men who were present, there were two sheriff's deputies, uh, Ben Murray and John Rutherford. Uh, interestingly, uh, they had also been involved in arresting Chitwood to begin with, um, and they had even attempted to claim the reward uh, for capturing Chitwood, and that was was denied, uh, which gives rise to potentially motives for why they may have wanted to murder Chitwood. Uh, but they were present. They were also prisoners in the uh, in the Garland County uh, Courthouse Jail, and they had been holding kind of kind of preliminary hearings and things in Garland County. Uh, but Chitwood's attorney had just gotten approval to hold the trial, the murder trial, uh, not in Garland County, but to hold it uh, nearby, I believe Saline County is eventually where they decided they were gonna do it. So they were gonna move uh, Chitwood from Garland County. They were gonna put him on a, a railroad car uh, and send him off to his next destination. Um, and as they're transporting him, uh, that's that's where he dies on the courthouse lawn. Now, can you describe, I know it's a little tricky without a photograph in, in, in front of us, but can you describe kind of what the scene or what the the layout of the area looks like? Because the optics of this, what can be seen and what can't be seen, are actually very important to the proceedings that follow his his death. Yeah, and once again, as was as is so often the case with these kind of stories, we have kind of conflicting testimony and conflicting sources. Uh, but essentially, we have the Garland County Courthouse, which is a very traditional kind of looking courthouse in many ways. Uh, it's still there, by the way. It's not used as the courthouse; it's used as uh, various offices and such. So if a listener ever wants to go and actually see the scene, you can actually go and walk the ground and the building is very similar to how it looked at the time. Um, and so you have the, the jail and of course the sheriff's offices and all that in the building. Uh, and then uh, as you walk out the side entrance going out towards the street, uh, there had been uh, an enclosure uh, built because they had had a legal execution just a short time before this. Uh, there was a, a young African-American man uh, named uh, Harry Poe uh, who had been executed legally, although somewhat questionably, as you might imagine. Uh, so there's some kind of obscuring kind of uh, kind of facility still there uh, that had been built uh, to kind of uh, allow them to uh, to conduct that execution. Uh, and that's that's where where Chitwood uh was killed, uh, but there are windows uh, from from the courthouse that would face out on that, and there's some testimony from prisoners uh, that claim that they they were able to look out windows of of the courthouse and see what happened, uh, and there also are. Uh, neighborhoods that kind of surround the area. It's kind of in the middle of town, as you might expect, in, in one of these small southern towns. Uh, so there are people that, that live just across the street from where all this is happening. Yeah, there's a sort of interesting tension between the visual evidence of what, what can and can't be seen that night and the the oral evidence, the sonic evidence of what is heard and what is, you know, and, and so you get sort of the prisoners claiming they heard Chitwood begging, begging for his life, which is, you know, really something. And then you also have the sort of question of the sonic evidence of gunshots. And then what, what really took me was this sort of sense of, 
you know, if they're claiming there was a lynch mob, you you and Guy Lancaster come in and and y'all look at this very carefully and you say, well, where is the evidence for the lynch mob? Because it would not have been possible for a mob to disappear sort of silently or, or, you know, there's just no, where is, where is there is the tracks, where is the noise they would have made, et cetera. None of that is recorded. Yeah. Well, we even have witnesses, uh, people living in town who said, okay, well, where did the lynch mob go? Because lynch mobs are going to make a lot of noise, particularly if they're riding on horseback on, on stone roads, on stone streets. And they're saying, there's no way a lynch mob passed by my house. I would have noticed. Um, it would have happened. Uh, and they're adamant, yeah, it's impossible. It, it, it couldn't have happened. So the only account that is uh, circulated at first is Rutherford's and Murray's account. Okay. Uh, how, how did this news of the lynching that wasn't a lynching spread so fast? Uh, well, you know, it goes back to this idea that we're living kind of in this period of a transportation and a communication revolution. Uh, so Hot Springs, because it's a tourist town, even though it's very isolated in some ways, uh, it does have uh, telegraph uh, lines that go in and out of the city. Uh, it has uh, excellent communication networks with uh, newspapers all around the country. So they send this story out. People are, are very interested in what's happening in Hot Springs because it's this tourist town, uh, which is a very important city that a lot of people have been to. A lot of people are familiar with it. Uh, and so, yeah, it transmits uh, pretty much pretty much immediately uh, all around the country uh, and shows up in newspapers. I think we have a newspaper from from Wyoming that shows up like a day later that's reporting on this. Yeah, that was I was not surprised, of course, to see the news reaching that newspaper you have in, in Natchez, right? Natchez is not very far away at all. And this sort of you do get regional wires, which are very active during this time. But I was really surprised to see that it had traveled across the country. And yet you make this point, Christopher, that that as is so often the case, they report the initial headline, which is murderer of sheriff's deputy you know, uh, lynched in Hot Springs, Arkansas, the sort of some variation on that particular headline. And then 90% of the newspapers that covered that initial story never pick it up again, even after the the doubt begins to sort of uh, circulate or, you know, shadows are cast on the actual version of events that Rutherford put forward. And so you sort of have this this lie travel throughout the country. Uh, I, I I hesitate to use the word fake news. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what we had was false news. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Uh, which if maybe there we can thread that needle there. You know, we had this incorrect account go out to the entire country, right? And then the aftermath, the corrected version of the news never follows. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. What, what do we do with that, right? Uh, it's, it's tough. And it's, it's, it's tough to, to be too hard, I think, on some of these newspapers around the country because they are getting a report from a government official, from government officials that are saying this thing has happened. Uh, and they're, they're saying Okay, we've been told this has happened. And at first, I think it's a very straightforward story and a story in some ghoulish way that is that is comforting. The idea that we've had a we've had a bad person 
uh, and the people of the community have taken the law into their own hands. And yeah, maybe we didn't dot the I and cross the T, but uh, Oscar Chitwood was an outlaw. He was a murderer and he's dead and good riddance to bad garbage, I think is kind of the attitude. When it turns out that it's not clear that's what happened and we get these really messy, conflicting accounts, there's nothing in any of that to feel good about. There's no sense of justice in any of it. And it gets really tough to kind of wrap your head around and to thread the needle, to to borrow the phrase you just used. And so I think that's part of why the subsequent story doesn't go out as well is because it's, it's not comforting. It's not simple. It doesn't make anybody feel good. And it's not clear at that point what's really going on. And so it's easier just to move on to the next thing. Yeah, it doesn't fit what, of course, we have come to know and love as the Texas defense, you know, the Ernest Tubbs, he had it coming, yeah. right? Like, yeah. And, and that's what we want to hear. But we, sometimes we don't, we don't have that, uh, that pleasure of hearing it because it's not the case. Let's go back to, let's go back to that, those first f- uh, few hours after he dies and after he's murdered, excuse me, uh, Chitwood. And let's take a look at the next couple of days, because there you do have these conflicting accounts, right? And what what really surprised me, Christopher, and I, I mean that I was surprised when I read how quickly Rutherford's account came under scrutiny, right? With the sort of the weird details observed as as being a miss from his account. There were these things that didn't add up, right? And it struck me because so often in stories, particularly from the Jim Crow South, you have law enforcement protecting themselves from acts of injustice, particularly against minority communities and black communities. As we know, in this case, you say that the injustice happened. It transcended racial lines, but typically what you see are the cops protecting the cops. It's so common in this era still common today, but particularly common in Jim Crow. And Rutherford is the exception to the rule. Why is that? Because Hot Springs is a complicated place, is the short answer to that. Uh, and Hot Springs certainly has this this well-deserved, or at least in the 19th and early 20th century, a well-deserved reputation as being a place that's very corrupt. But it's also a place where you have reformers. And it's also a place where you have people that very much want the letter of the law to be followed. And so you have this constant wave in Hot Springs of corruption and you know violating the law and being in league with the uh, with the criminals and with the gangsters. But then you also have this constant kind of kind of pushback of the reformers that that want to make sure that the law is is followed. Uh, and so I think that's what's going on there. Uh, you know the. Uh, hopped uh, had even uh, his his election to sheriff had even been contested. People had suggested that he he did not did not rightfully earn that place. Uh, and uh, the sheriffs in Garland County, there was a whole string of them, and I and I get into where you get into a little bit in the book uh, about the uh, um, about the corruption and about kind of the pushback on some of that. So yeah, I think I think that's what it is. I think you have you have a faction of kind of reformers that want things done right, and then you have a faction that's a little more fast and loose and maybe a little more corrupt and is a little more eager to take law into their own hands. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of the conflict that, that kind of plays out. And I think that's why, uh, why Rutherford and, and Murray got themselves in trouble, at least, at least for a little while. So it's three days later, 
I mean, it's this is lightning speed if you think about it in the grand scheme of things. Three days later, uh, the coroner orders Rutherford arrested, Rutherford Murray, and and they go to an inquest. I had one quick question for you before we start talking about the trial. Why why was it the coroner who had the authority to have them arrested and not? another public official or a, or a uh, presiding judge who we will get to, Harry Evans. But why in this case did the coroner have the authority to have them arrested? I, I don't have a perfect answer to that. That's a good question. Um, and I think one of the things you get into, I don't know that it's that he had the authority. I know that it's that he did it. And I think sometimes what happens uh, in these situations where law and order are kind of breaking down and there's kind of conflict within governmental apparatuses is you have people stepping up and saying this has to happen. And maybe they don't exactly have the authority, but they kind of claim the authority and people go along. Um, to be perfectly honest, I'm not I'm not sure that he did have the authority. Uh, I'm not sure that that would have held up uh, under uh, under close scrutiny by lawyers. Uh, he just did it, and people went with it. Sure, sure. And uh, different states and different counties have different rules, you know, regarding the difference between coroners and medical examiners, et cetera. And I understand that there's a there are sometimes some blurry lines there. That just detail that detail just sort of stood out to me, you know, a little bit. So I think there's a question too there about about physical evidence because we have conflicting eyewitness testimony. And so that's where we kind of get into that forensic medicine. And that may have been part of the claim was that in his capacity as someone that understands forensics, uh, that he could add some kind of scientific certainty to these conflicting, uh, conflicting testimonies. Right. Which is to say the neck was not snapped. There was no bruising yes. around yes. the collarbone. Yes. <laughs> right? yes. There yes. are no signs of a lynching, you know, that have, that have taken place here. And in fact, these suspicious looking entry wounds and exit wounds of a small caliber bullet, which may match, you know, that which a sheriff's deputy happens to carry with him, maybe require a little investigation. I don't know. Tell me about because this does very quickly progress to a, a proper, a formal inquest against Rutherford and Murray, and they are put on trial. I was curious, in amidst this sort of corruption soup of, of uh, turn-of-century hot springs, who was Harry Evans? Who was Henry Evans, excuse me, the judge who ends up having to preside over this particular case? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a great question uh, in terms of, of who he is and how he fits into all this. Um, I'll confess, I, I don't I don't know that I could I could say with definitive evidence kind of kind of where he fits in. I think we've got some folks in this story that are are clearly kind of on the side of the reformers. We have some folks that are pretty clearly corrupt or engaging in some questionable things. And then I think we have other folks. I just don't know. It's a good question. I, I don't I, I don't know exactly how I would categorize him. Well, sometimes as we're doing this research, you know, we don't always get the full picture or the portrait, you know, of a person who enters in. And I found that particularly with law enforcement, sometimes you get someone plays a role for a brief time and then they disappear from the kind of, you know, the records or the or the story, what have you. But it struck me because uh, Henry Evans, Judge Evans, in your entire account, he does seem to be an actual no-nonsense law and order kind of judge who does not 
view law enforcement with this kind of instinctive sympathy, right? That you might see in other in other places or in other times. He's he's the one who uh, keeps keeps this train moving towards. Uh, towards justice. Now it is a jury trial, which is uh, it's not completely up to to Evans, you know, to decide Rutherford and Murray's guilt. But uh, he seems, at least in in this account, to be about as impartial as one could possibly hope for. What I want to ask you though is, what is the strategy of the prosecution and the defense here? Because you've got a law enforcement officer, two law enforcement officers on trial, you know, for murder. And Rutherford has to have his defense, and yet the prosecution, the state, has to have their conflicting version of events and their approach. So how does that shake out once we actually reach the courtroom? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think I think Rutherford uh, and his uh, defense attorneys are pretty adamant that no, no, there there was a lynch mob. Uh, I think Rutherford tries to kind of stand on his status as a member of law enforcement. Uh, he tries to be very uh, adamant that uh, he had no personal animosity towards Chitwood. That he is he's a, he's a professional lawman. He is above such such silly things. Uh, he he had no particular reason to want to murder him. He has no real motive to do this. Uh, he certainly has no motive that would would be so great that would put him into uh, to making the, the kind of decision that would put him in, in legal jeopardy. Uh, and he's just very adamant uh, that that he is correct, that he was there and that Murray was there and other people weren't, and that the other uh, witnesses uh, are untrustworthy in one way or another. Either you know they are a, a townsfolk, uh, townsperson that was living a block away that said, oh, there's no way a, a lynch mob passed by me. Well, you know, how sure can you really be of what's going on outside your house at 2 a.m. when you're sound asleep? Like, that's it's all well and good to say you know, but, but how can you really know? Uh, and then we have the uh, the testimony of prisoners, uh, and I think, I think the defense does a really good job of questioning that testimony by pointing out prisoners have every reason to say something ugly about members of law enforcement that are holding them accountable for their crimes. Like you can't trust these people; they're in jail for a reason, uh, and they have every reason to to be unhappy with their guards. Uh, so I think I think that's essentially it's the the argument is that their testimony is is more trustworthy than anybody else's, um, and that they they had no real motive. So then, how does the prosecution come back against these particular claims? Uh, well, the the prosecution uh, essentially argues uh, that the the deputies did have motive uh, to want to murder Chitwood. Uh, they point out that uh, that Hopped was a, a very popular uh, sheriff. They'd been in their employer. Uh, that he was a fellow lawman, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable that a sheriff's deputy would dislike someone who they think has murdered a member of law enforcement in their town, particularly one that they had a personal relationship with and owned some kind of personal loyalty to. Uh, they point out that that absolutely is a motive for murder. You also get into this kind of complicated, messy issue where these two deputies had tried to claim uh, the reward for capturing 
uh, Chitwood, and that that was kind of shot down, and they were even kind of sh- uh, kind of shamed uh, for trying to collect a reward for basically doing their jobs as sheriff's deputies. So that adds an additional level that they may have been trying to kind of recover their image because uh, they were seen by some people in town when they tried to claim that reward as kind of being greedy or or nefarious or something like that. This may have been an attempt to kind of kind of cover their good name or to silence somebody who may have had other things to say about them. That would have been uh, would have been a problem for them, uh, and they claim that while it certainly is is true that people are usually in jail for a reason, uh, that there's pretty strong testimony uh, that they heard and saw all the murder take place, uh, and that while one individual member of t- of the of the community thinking they heard something or thinking they saw something, maybe something, but the fact that you have unanimously consistent testimony from everyone living in the neighborhood saying, no, this could not have happened the way the deputies have said, and they certainly have no no reason to, to be unhappy with the deputies or to want them in trouble, uh, that the totality of the evidence suggests, along with maybe some forensic details and stuff, uh, unfortunately, the coroner's inquest uh, is, is missing. I was able to find some really good records, uh, but that's I wasn't able to locate that. I don't think it exists anymore. Um, maybe, maybe there's some nefarious reason for that, or maybe it's just one of those things that just didn't didn't get preserved. Who who knows at this point? But essentially, that's the it argument. Not, yeah, it would not be the first uh, sort of mysterious disappearance that takes place in your book. You know, um, the auto, the autopsy report from the day of the shootout also mysteriously disappeared or was never produced. And, um, it's fun. It's funny how in, you know, sort of small town, uh, sort of Southern, um, law enforcement offices records sometimes mysteriously just go missing. You know, it's funny how often that happens. It it does. (laughs) And here's a, and, and obviously, that 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 certainly is possible. It's possible there was something inconvenient, and it was thrown down the memory hole to be forever gone. However, uh, you know, one of the old tropes, if you if you do uh, you know research in old old archives or old courthouses, particularly in the South, is somebody say, "Oh, we had a fire. Oh, we had a fire." Well, there was actually a really well documented fire in 1913 in Hot Springs, and some of the records I looked at from this 1910 era had singe marks on them. So clearly some really? of the, oh, they did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some of them absolutely have like singe marks around the edges. A couple of boxes had clearly it had fire damage, whether that was done in 1913 or a hundred years later, who knows? Uh, so yeah, it may be that there was something nefarious that was intentionally destroyed. Uh, it could also be that the, in this rare circumstance, we really can blame a fire on a courthouse. That is a, uh, I, yeah, okay, you win. <laughs> my, my, my skepticism is uh, <laughs> my my skeptic's hat has just come off. That may that may well that may well have uh, explained it. All right, and, all right. Here's the thing on that too. I'm I'm really not taking a side. Uh, I, I could I, I honestly don't know. Um, I mean, if I if I had to guess, I'd flip a coin. So yeah, I mean, it, it, your your cynicism is is well founded, but I don't know. You write that the verdict really was a surprise to everyone, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, I think I think it was. Uh, the fact that he was found, uh, that Rutherford was found not guilty, um, I think really shocked a lot of people because the evidence did seem pretty overwhelming. No, other, well, first of all, what was his reaction or what was the reaction when um, when that verdict was announced? I mean, did Rutherford sort of... Uh, 
sort of claim vindication and go right back to murdering unarmed prisoners <laughs> or did, did, did he uh, did he did he sort of take a little time out of out of the public eye in order to let the whole thing calm down uh i, I think he i think he, he took it as vindication i think that whole kind of faction took it as vindication i think the the reformers rightly saw it as a, a repudiation a repudiation of their efforts uh yeah both of them both rutherford and, and murray both kind of remain kind of kind of shadowy characters. I don't know that either one of them ever murdered a prisoner. Uh, there was one, and I apologize, I can't remember which one it was off the top of my head, uh, that ended up doing something like 13 years in federal prison for trying to blow up a judge with uh, nitroglycerin. Oh, good Lord. Well, yeah, don't do that as a rule. Just don't do not do that. Um, you know, what, what struck me in your account of the aftermath there was that there were a number of other indictments that were handed down as a as a kind of consequence or kind of in in parallel with this particular trial, and most notably, uh, Christopher, you write that Sid Hopped himself was handed an indictment. Now, why was that? So he got himself in trouble in a couple ways. Uh, so these two deputies, of course, had worked for him. They'd worked together as deputies, and then and then Sid had been the sheriff. Uh, with these two men working for him, and even though Sid was was away, he was out of out of state at the time of uh, of Chipwood's murder. Uh, he was still sheriff, and when he came back, uh, and Murray and Rutherford uh, were uh, were put on trial, uh, there was a court order uh, to to hold them to hold them in the jail uh, because they were, I think, quite rightly seen as as very dangerous characters that needed to be kept under lock and key. Uh, and, and Sid and his duties as sheriff, uh, told them, oh no, no, it's okay. I know what the judge said, but you can, you can live at home. Uh, just make sure you show up for all your court dates. And so he was actually indicted for, charged with, uh, facilitating escape of a prisoner, which is kind of crazy. Um, and his defense when it goes to trial is, uh, as an elective sheriff, or he wasn't elected, but sheriff usually is an elected position. As sheriff of the county, uh, he is the the chief law enforcement officer for the county. He has a right to decide how prisoners will be housed and things like that. And he points out correctly, they showed up for all their court dates. So he says, I correctly deduce they could live at home and they would still show up uh, for all their court dates and they would still make sure they wouldn't disappear into the night or anything. Uh, but he did. He did violate the judge's orders, uh, and uh, he was he was he was convicted of that. And you write that this this actually broke the grip of the Hopped family on the justice system locally. That was kind of the end of their end of their reign, so to speak, which is really interesting. You don't often see that as much. Yeah, and there was also corruption issues uh, that, that both Hop brothers had gotten into in terms of misallocation of funds. Uh, There's also the Williams family, and the Williams and the Hops had kind of gone back and forth on who was running that office. Uh, there was also another uh, brother I mentioned. We mentioned in the book a Reb Hopped, uh, which is a, it's a great name for a Southern sheriff, uh, who had been yep. had been removed <laughs> for corruption, but was still, I guess, was still allowed to be a deputy. I don't understand exactly how that was allowed, but that's you know that's that's how it works sometimes. Uh, so yeah, there was also the question of kind of misallocating funds. And when he was convicted, I think he was sentenced to something like one day in jail. Uh, and the idea was really just to remove him. From, from from the sheriff's office.
introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. I have a, just a couple more questions for you. Um, the first one is, I mean, you write that sort of Rutherford is never convicted. He's never, he, he walks basically. And, you know, Chitwood's, Chitwood's murderer, um, you know, he, he lives out the rest of his days and so forth. Near the, near the end of your book, Christopher, you have an extended meditation on violence. And this is a topic, as we discussed last week, that you've written about a great deal before. Um, and it's a topic that we both know is unfortunately endemic to the South, and in particular, the Jim Crow South. And uh, this book struck me as one that could have very easily come in our series on the Dixie Mafia that we did last year, that the sort of the actions of the Hopped family were of kith and kin, you know, with so many other corrupt sheriff's offices, you know, of the day. Um, the question that I have for you is in this series on holiday horror, a horror is not always evil clowns or axe murderers or, or sort of bloodstained floorboards in a haunted house, right? Sometimes it is the wrongful murder of a man who is denied his due process, even even if his actions had in fact led him to be handcuffed and bound, the horror is his wrongful murder at being denied his constitutional rights. The question that I have for you is, what is the legacy of this case in Hot Springs or in Arkansas generally today? Oh, that's a great question. So I think going back to something we were talking about a minute ago about the the idea that the the news of the supposed lynching spread and was never really retracted, uh, it's it's interesting that from time to time, if you read books or if you look at monuments or things like this that have lists of lynching victims, uh, Oscar Chitwood is still still often listed as a lynching as a lynching uh, victim. Uh, and it's because the the truth never never quite came out. As horrible as the story of a lynching is, uh, I think the story of what really happened is in some ways worse. Uh, and the idea that it's not it's not the vigilantes, it's not you know it's not the scary people uh, that you know you you cross the street to avoid because it's this unruly mob that looks dangerous, uh, but instead it's this person in a an official capacity. Uh, who has a a government job that has a badge that has you know has all the authority of the of the county and the state behind them, 
Um, I think that that's a much scarier story. So I think I think to the extent that it shows up anywhere, he kind of is listed as another lynching victim, which is is, of course, incorrect, or at least Lancaster and I argue it's incorrect um, in terms of how it's remembered in Hot Springs. I really don't think it is. Uh, I think it's one of those stories that that really has never really been told any significant degree uh, before Lancaster and I came along and 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 brought it uh, brought it to light. Uh, there are other there are other stories in Hot Springs certainly about about crime and, and violence that are told, and this one this one has not really been told, which is part of why we want to tell it. And um, and I think a lot of why it's not told is because it's just it's just such a messy conflicted story. Well, that certainly is a reminder that horror takes many forms, uh, isn't it? Yeah. The last question I have for you is where can listeners find out more about uh, your work and Guy Lancaster's work uh, if they want to read more about this case or some of the other books that you've written? Uh, sure. Uh, so, so great resources kind of, kind of on this story and on things surrounding that story. Uh, I would strongly encourage people to uh, check out the Encyclopedia of Arkansas. It's available for free online. There's lots of wonderful, wonderful articles. You can easily go down a rabbit hole, and I often do, uh, of, of going down and clicking from one thing to the next and learning more about the history of Arkansas and the history particularly of Hot Springs. Um, I've written some of those articles. Lancaster's written quite a few. Uh, if anyone is interested not just in uh, in learning more, but actually wants to contribute. Maybe they want to uh, to help out as we all try to preserve some of this fascinating history. Uh, the encyclopedia is always looking for contributing authors, so so please click on that and uh, and consider uh, contributing your your time and your expertise to to help us with that. Uh, another thing I'll recommend would be the Garland County Historical Society. Uh, Liz Robbins, who's the head of that society, is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, we could not have written this without her, uh, and. If you want to know about the history of Hot Springs, if you want to know about the, the history of this fascinating place, uh, you need to uh, subscribe to their journal, uh, which Lancaster and I both publish in from time to time, and lots of other historians that are uh, really, really, uh, really fantastic. Uh, but you can get copies of their journal, and they have books that they publish and, and various uh, various other things. Or if you just want to go and look at those primary sources, of course, you can go visit in person uh, if you're able, but you can uh, visit their website and get their materials. Uh, in terms of my books, uh, I published my first one with McFarland Press. Uh, my Civil War book that I published last year was with University of Tennessee Press, and I've got another one coming out with University of Tennessee Press uh, that will come out in 2023. Uh, and then Lancaster, of course, you can you can pull him up on Amazon and see his long list of, uh, of highly esteemed works. I don't even want to give the list. I'd leave out some of the good ones, I'm <laughs> sure. But he's he's quite the prolific author. I'm, I'm glad that I've got to work with him. But I would Encyclopedia of Arkansas and the Garland County Historical Society would be the, the two things that I would check out if you want to if you want to learn more and if you want to uh, maybe even contribute a little bit to some of this great history. Well, those are some lovely invitations, and I know that our listeners will be uh, delighted to take a look and, and see what's out there. So thank you so much, and thank you for joining us these past two weeks. We have appreciated it so much, and it's a it's a hell of a story. Uh, <laughs> pardon my French. Quite all right. Very grateful for your taking us back in time, and all the best for your next book. Hey, I appreciate that, and thank you so much for inviting me to uh, to come and speak with you. It's been it's been a wonderful conversation, and I and I really do appreciate it. All right, we'll do it again. Thanks so much, Christopher. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 
Our guest has been Christopher Thrasher, the co-author of The Murder of Oscar Chitwood in Hot Springs, Arkansas, published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org slash shop slash crime dash capsule. And one more time, don't forget to write in to crimecapsule at evergreenpodcasts.com for a chance to win a free copy from Arcadia Publishing of one of the books from our recent series on the paranormal. We can't wait to hear from you. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 